With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Have you ever had the jam and toast tea? Which I think York should do. That's quite good. I... No. It, yeah, it is. It's all right at bedtime. I tried it once and then threw it out. <laughs> I'd have had it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think the biscuit brew is decent, but the um, the jam and toast, I thought it smelled amazing, but it t- didn't taste uh, as good. I mean, I didn't find it offensive or anything, but I didn't think it tasted of what it was meant to. My granddad used to dip his uh, toast in his tea. He'd have jam on toast and he would dip it in his tea. Is that is that weird? A man ahead of his time. <laughs> I mean, I'd have thrown and, him out, clearly. But. And, and he's also the chief exec of Yorkshire <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tea. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club, and this is your show. There's barely time to catch your breath at the moment. First, Manchester City pull off a record-breaking win over Watford in, let's be honest, fairly simple fashion. But then there's been no time to sit down and digest that because then that Champions League chaos against Real Madrid happened a couple of days later. And it's leads away on Saturday before the potential of more madness in Madrid in the following midweek. Honestly, when are we supposed to eat and sleep at this time of the season? Welcome to today's Blue Moon podcast. On the show this week, we'll do our best to work out what shape City are in after that exhausting semi-final first leg on Tuesday and what challenges this weekend's trip to West Yorkshire will pose. We'll hear the second part of our interview with former City defender Spencer Pryor and Howard Hawking will be back as well. I'm David Mooney and joining me for this one, I've got two City fans. I've got Richard Burns. Hi, David. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. And Gaz is back. Hi, Gaz. Hi, you right. Not too bad, thanks. Not too bad. So, uh, going to flip things a little bit um, arse upwards this week and start with a few listener questions, which we'd normally do at the end of the show, uh, largely because they were all about the Real Madrid game. So, uh, David on Twitter starts us off with, is it just me or was that result against Madrid somewhat disappointing? We have a one-goal lead against a team from Madrid again, but this time we were wasteful and slack rather than clinical and focused. Am I crazy for getting strong post-Monaco vibes? Richard, what do you reckon? Um... I think, like, to me, it, it, the result isn't disappointing. Um, and I think it's what's, what's legitimate is to look at the game after the fact and say this could have been better, because of course it could. It, the game could have realistically been buried before Madrid scored. It could have been uh, 3-0, City had the chances to make that happen. Um, before Real Madrid got their goal. And if that happens, it's um, which isn't to say that they couldn't have then gone on to score two or three or whatever, but it's clearly a different complexion if that happens. So I think it's legitimate to be frustrated that we weren't out of sight on the balance of play. But I sort of think um, David sort of, for me, sort of addresses his own point with the the first sentence after the question, we, we're taking a 1-0 lead to the Bernabeu. And of course, we've got this experience of um, when we were knocked out by Monaco, despite having a 5-3 lead. This is a different team. 
um, like an entirely different and, and much, much better team, far better equipped to handle this kind of occasion. Um, and so I wish we had a clearer lead. I wish we hadn't conceded three goals, but um, you sort of have to acknowledge that we were also playing a, a really, really good opponent who could put three goals past anyone. And so just as will be disappointed not to be clearer, um, they probably wouldn't expect to go to many grounds in the world and concede four goals. So to me, um, I think it's okay to be frustrated. I would stray away from this idea that uh, some people are suggesting that sort of Madrid somehow holds some kind of advantage now because they don't. Um, City won the game. They take a lead to the Bernabeu. It is a fantastic position to be in. It felt like we were two two goals better than them. And at three points in the game, we were actually two goals ahead of them. So... I suppose from that perspective, it's disappointing to only be one ahead, but you would have took it before the match. Um, I think as well, it's a bit different from the Monaco game because there's different, not just a different team now as well, it's different rules. Like they haven't got three away goals, which which was what was telling, which was what was crucial, wasn't it, in that time? Yeah. I um, also want to ask this from Kieran Murray. Despite our uneasy relationship with the Champions League, some of the most memorable, fun, memorable big games and memorable moments seem to come in that competition. What will it take for us to unclench our annoyance with it, embrace the madness and incredible games and start to enjoy it for what it is? Um, I, this is an interesting point, Gaz, because City fans don't like the Champions League by and large. But you get like some of the best games that City have had under Guardiola have been Champions League games, haven't they? Um, yeah, I don't think that it's true anymore that we don't really, in, in, you know, embrace the Champions League or seem to enjoy it or, you know, we yeah, we've had loads of good games in it now, we've just not won it. It's not, I, I'd, I'd say that it's kind of changed, hasn't it? We've had plenty of big moments and big victories and, and, and such in it. it. It kind of feels, I kind of feel like that sort of discourse from, you know, a few years ago doesn't really apply anymore. It does in the groups, though, doesn't it, Richard? Is that is is that part of this? Is that the group stage can be a bit laborious at times? I think so. I think um, a big part of it, well, to me at least, and maybe I'm sort of over personalising what's a pretty general a uh, general point, but I think a big part of why the Champions League felt a little bit underwhelming for a long time was that the group stages aren't aren't really fantastic most of the time in most groups you can usually pick who's going to go through them um and it means that um you know a lot of it's usually very predictable i suppose it's predictable game by game and it's predictable um who's gonna who's gonna go through each group and it's not until the quarterfinals in particular the semi-finals that it really really starts to show its quality where you're just left with usually the sort of real cream of the crop and you get high quality games more often than not and City haven't been knocking around this end of the Champions League all that often and so I think it probably felt overhyped and underwhelming for a long long time because we were only used to the overhyped and underwhelming part of it um and now we're not. Now we're we're seeing these occasions, and um, you know, I mean, like more than playing our part in them. The before last season, the only time we'd been in a semi final, it was rubbish. So even that was underwhelming. And I just think now we've got um, we've got more of our own story in it. We've got this, um, like like Karen said in the question, uh, more of a history of 
bigger games, big occasions, some really classic games that we've played in it. And I also think you can't overlook that we've now got a full generation of fans who've never known City not be in the Champions League. It's just normal to them. It's not a big thing to qualify for it, I don't think. It's just, it's what happens as, as much as we're in the FA Cup, we're in the Champions League. So um, I think all of that stuff plays a part to, it's more of a normal thing and the big nights come along like Tuesday night and it's... um. You know, it's a big occasion and it, it really embeds it as something that we're just more used to. And I agree with Gaz. I don't think it's as much of a thing as it used to be that City fans don't get the Champions League anymore. Yeah. Let's turn our attention uh, back to Tuesday night proper because uh, Top Trevor on Twitter has asked, uh, you've discussed numerous times on the podcast how City reached the Champions League final last season. Controlled patience stopping the counter-attacks. Tuesday felt like they were going against that very thing that made them successful in Europe last season. Um Richard, I, I kind of get this because there was there was elements of chaos in that Madrid game. But equally, I think is it is it partly that Madrid are the be- are the best team of all the teams that City have played in those in those Champions League knockout games, including last season. Yeah, I think that's um, a huge contributing factor. The um, in the same way that we we can't really play a Premier League game against Liverpool the same way that we would against I don't know Watford, Everton, whoever. Um, then yeah, the 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 game on Tuesday night called for a different kind of football. Madrid are capable, I think, of you know you've got Benzema who can't help but score at the moment. He was always going to realistically was always going to score at some point against City. So immediately you go into a, a two-legged tie knowing that you probably going to concede at some point, which obviously changes how much you have to score, so on. Um, and yeah, I don't I don't think it was ever really going to be a um, that same kind of control that we sort of cruised through some of last season's Champions League. I mean, even think of that second leg against PSG last year. It was, um, it was, it, it didn't feel really that difficult at the time. We, we knew that we were through it and they lost their heads with quite a way to go. Um, and this was just, I don't think this was ever really going to be um, that kind of occasion. Even you look at the previous round, Atletico Madrid, would the way that we played last year, like we, we had to dig into something a little bit different to how City normally played to get through it. I think, um, I get the question, but I just think different situations call for different resolutions and um, we're, we're partway through to finding out if they've got the right one for Real Madrid. It's, it's looking quite good so far. Yeah, and uh, finally, Paul Barron on Twitter says, um, are you worried about the pace in the defence without Walker, Gaz? Um, yeah, <laughs> I think so. Simple as that. Uh, but I, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I suppose it's not just his pace. You know, we, we we sort of miss the full package, really, don't we? He's the he's fantastic right back. He's been, you know, particularly in those European games, he's been he's been really good for us, and he's probably the one player in the squad that just doesn't have a doesn't have a replacement if he's not there. Um, you know, there's there's you know there's, there's high profile players in him in the squad, but they're more easily replaceable than Walker is. Yeah, what did you make of uh, the way City dealt with that right back issue, Gaz, on uh, on Tuesday? Because, like, realistically, is there any other way Guardiola could have could have approached it? He could have played that Egan Riley, couldn't he? Who who looked decent against Southampton? Um, it is a big test against Real Madrid, though. Yeah, it would be. It would be. Um, but didn't 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 the Stasic make his debut and look very good um, against Real Madrid? And what a career he's ended up having. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> Um, yeah, but um, yeah, it would have been. I mean, Stones obviously just wasn't up to it, was he? Given the fact that he, he sort of limped off. Um, I, I really enjoyed Fernandinho's performance. Um, 
Uh, I mean, it was a bit of a mixed bag. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I suppose I suppose that, that, that that's the options we had. I think I think he made the right. Yeah, I think he made the right call to play Stones because he's done a decent job there recently when he's had to, and uh, I think Fernandinho justified his in- inclusion despite the uh, the Vinicius goal. Yeah. Um, I, I, in terms of how City could have dealt with Stones' injury, Richard, um, like could he could Guardiola have done something a bit earlier to kind of protect uh, Fernandinho? I saw a lot of people on on Twitter wanted um, Raheem Sterling on the right hand side to give some sort of protection. That didn't happen till quite late on in the game. Yeah, I mean, maybe, but for uh, I, I guess. The way that City were playing, even with that situation, as it was with Fernandinho not protected in that way, so to speak, we were City was still, I think, in the ascendancy for most of that. Of course, Madrid had some patches where they were um, putting the pressure on significantly, which again, I think, would have been a thing at some point anyway, because that's it's Real Madrid. Um, but I think City was still creating chances, and I guess maybe Pep's thinking was. We see quite often that he's late with substitutions because he sort of trusts the team to do what they set out to do initially. And I think maybe just, um, I mean, this might be a, a really incorrect reading of it because who would ever try and read Guardiola's mind? But he, he was probably just sort of happy to keep trusting them to keep creating the chances and put a few of them away and may, maybe take that risk at the back a little bit. Um which I don't think is with the way that City were going. I don't think is um, like particularly mad to have left it as it was for as long as he did. Um, I suppose without a natural right back at right back, it's always going to be a risk at that position anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean Fernandinho was he was doing okay. Like Gaz says, it was a bit of a mixed bag, but I don't think it was. Um, it wasn't a disaster class or anything, was it? It was. I suppose you probably bank on Fernandinho's experience as well to sort of be enough to maybe not need the protection. I think going forward, Fernandinho's still fine. I mean, the funny thing is, is that like, um, I think people kind of forget because he ended up becoming like the, the sort of ultimate sort of defensive midfielder, at, you know, in what would you'd probably consider to be his sort of peak. We bought him as a sort of box-to-box player, didn't we? Who could sort of go forward as well as he could sort of do the other side of it. And, uh, you know, while he might sort of get played round a bit, he's still got loads and loads of quality on the ball. Um, he showed so, that a few times, actually. And there were yeah. moments in the midfield where he'd stepped inside and just took control of the situation like like, like he used to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, well, he got a golden earlier this year as well, sort of like just you know, moving forward with a bit of quality. I mean, he's, you, you don't ever lose that. Um, I just wonder if it... I mean, the funny thing is, is that, like... Obviously, like the, the competition for places is just so much more further up the field, but it would it would probably make more sense to use him less as a defensive player and more of a sort of stopgap further forward if we ever needed another <laughs> forward-thinking midfielder, but we don't. <laughs> so there we go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gaz, you, uh, that goal that you talked about, the Vinicius one, um, could Laporte have done better? Could he have come across and, and covered? So I've only seen it once in the stadium, uh, and I remember thinking. He's definitely going to score. And then just before he scored, I felt that we dealt with it and then it went in. Um, so there must have been a point where I thought he could have he could have done something. Um, but I don't know. 
he, he was just away, wasn't he, as well, at the same time. I want to talk about Gabriel Jesus, Richard, because uh, he's had quite a week. Five goals for him this week. Um, what do you make of it all? Well, I mean, Jesus has a point in every season where he seems to put Jimmy Grimble's boots on and everything's absolutely fantastic <laughs> and he, he can't stop putting the ball in the net. And he's timed that very, very well this season, I think. I think he's always got quality, hasn't he, to show. I don't think... Like, it's hard to talk about him almost without sounding cliched now that he's always going to offer the team something because he absolutely works his ass off wherever you put him. Um, and that, even if he's not on his best form, and he's really capable of some quite bad form, I think, but even when he's not on his best form, that is always going to count for something. Um and I, I also think that for a player who has got talent, if that's your attitude, then there's always going to be a point where it pays off and you come into form. Clearly, four goals in, I mean, against anyone in the Premier League is um, an exceptional, like an, an exceptional result um, to be able to sort of show for your work. So, yeah, I was really, really happy for him. Um, and his, his goal against Madrid was typical of a... a Jesus, who's in that run of form, is I think as a goal scorer, he's extremely streaky. But in, in almost a way to to kind of illustrate that, um, he scored twelve goals this season. Six of them have come in the last five games. Well, yeah, and hadn't he? Was it um, until recently um, he'd not scored a Premier League goal since? Was it September? So, like, he is incredibly streaky, and like so, that's that highlights it more than any other. Um, but once he's in that form, he was—he got a little bit of luck with the way the ball sort of ended up at his feet for his goal on Tuesday. But his finish was smart. And it's watching the replays, I hadn't sort of appreciated how quick he had to be. Because in the stadium, I'd sort of thought um, he'd had quite a lot more time than he actually did. But he was really quick and he was really sharp. And it's the kind of chance that he's on a different day or in a different point in the season, he's more than capable of missing that. Or um, I guess maybe letting things get in his head a little bit. But I'm, I'm really happy to see he's such a likeable player. Um, and it, it's great to see that he can step up and at a point when sort of everybody's thinking forward to who City's strikers likely to be next season. To see that Jesus has, has still got that in his locker and, and just reminding everybody that that quality is there, um, uh, it's, it's, it's really, really good. And he's, he's got a knack of pulling it out against Real Madrid as well, hasn't he? So long may that continue. Yeah. But uh, if a decent offer came in, maybe from Arsenal, Gaz, would you would you take it? Um, I prefer to have him, um, I think. Uh yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess that question sort of depends on what what you're replacing him with. But my my only concern really is if like if the replacement is Alvarez and Haaland, is that you you're sort of replacing a player? Then you're not replacing a like flight player because as we show, you know, as he's shown, there's always a need when you there's always games that come around where you require a Gabriel Jesus, um, and those players aren't that player. It, it might make more sense to. You know, sell. I don't know one of the other forward players to 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 make space for those to come in because that they're more sim- that you know they're more similar to the ones which are which are coming in. If you know what I mean. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I want to talk about a couple of the other great performances of the week because uh, Gaz De Bruyne looks like a man possessed at the moment. What's what, what's up with him? He's he's just like I, 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 he drops a ten out of t- a ten out of ten one week and then gets better the next. Yeah, just incredible. Um, I don't. I, I, um, he's coming into form just at the right time, and hopefully we can ride on those coattails. Um, there's, there's, there's not much else you can sort of say, really. It, it's not just the, um, the, 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 you know, what he's actually producing himself, but he sort of lifts everyone around him, and you can see that he's well up for it. You can sort of see that in his sort of reactions to absolutely everything on the pitch as well. Um, so right, right in the referee's face on Tuesday as well. Yeah, a number of times. Yeah. yeah, just need to keep him fit. Hopefully, he can be, and then you know, sky's the limit. Yeah, um, Richard. The the other one I um, the the one I was really impressed with on a, a Tuesday evening, and uh, to be fair, against Watford as well, he played uh, played pretty well. Um, Zinchenko, I thought he was phenomenal in the Champions League game, and on top of that, the the Bernardo goal, uh, the the fall he did for that foul, absolutely <laughs> top class. Yeah, he he was outstanding um, right from. The, the get-go on Tuesday night, he was phenomenal. He was he seemed to be sort of winning every single tackle, some of them um, extremely important and feeling quite last-ditch. I thought his, his application to, um, to deal with what Madrid offer going forward was, I think it was pretty extraordinary, really, because he makes you forget that he's not a left-back. A lot well, of the time, like he is it, though now, isn't he? You no, this okay. now. You, he can only ever be judged as left back because he's not played anywhere else before. Yeah, but he's not a left back. <laughs> okay, so he is a left back because he's been molded into a left back. Yeah, but I think it, it's rare, really, that a player. I mean, maybe it's not rare in Guardiola teams, but it's okay. Well, I, I tell you what, the easy comparison to use. Fabian Delph was decent at left back for a while, but didn't last very long before he started to show that he was a square peg in a round hole. Mm. And that's never really happened with Zinchenko. I think sometimes, you know, he's, you can see that he's not maybe a world-class fullback, but most of the time he does the job well. And sometimes he does the job exceptionally. And he's got a knack of producing those really exceptional performances on the really big occasions. I think the Chelsea League Cup final when he was man of the match. PSG, the second leg last year. I think it was second leg. Maybe even both legs. I could be doing him a disservice there. But I remember him being outstanding against PSG. And then he's done it again on Tuesday night. So, yeah, of course he can only be judged as a left back because that's where we play him. But I do think the fact that we can say that this far into his City career when at one point he looked like he was probably going because at he couldn't point, get in his... Like, it, it, like three points. Yeah. They've, tried, they've tried to get rid of him consistently. Yeah, no, I'm, he's, I'm, yeah I'm, not, I'm not saying he's not been... I mean, like I, I thought he was man of the match on, on, yeah. on Tuesday. Um, yeah, I just find it strange when people keep referring I, to him as, a, as, as someone playing out of position. I thought, well, he's not anymore, is he? He's... he's He's actually learned how to play that position, and and you know that, that that's what he is. But that's to his credit, rather than anything else. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I also think it's worth mentioning and sort of hyper aware of being like overly sentimental on somebody else's behalf. What is to put in performances like that when you imagine the things that he must be carrying around with him at the moment? I mean, maybe it's the case of like football being a release for him, um, but I, I think that is also an incredible testament to his um, his mental strength. I think it's um, the sort of thing that most people can't really imagine and is is pretty extraordinary as well. Yeah. So, saw it with Silver a couple of years ago, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. 
Gaz, I also want to uh, praise Rodri for his performance because one thing I thought he was doing, I know Madrid got in a few times, um, but I thought by and large Rodri was was pretty good at cutting out the space in front of of the defence and also accepting the pressure sometimes. The number of times he had the ball played into feet and he was surrounded but still found the next pass. Yeah, and and I think he's got himself into that role. You know, if I said before that Walker's the one player who's the most irreplaceable given everything else, Given um, Rodri's definitely second in that, um, he's, he's so important, uh, and yeah, really sort of found found his feet. I mean, when he, when he signed a few years ago, I, I thought that he, he was a bit, you know, legend didn't you know wasn't particularly good at. Um, I used to have a bit of a problem with him, sort of progressing play. He never seemed to be able to sort of be available for the ball, you know, after after defenders and move it forward. But all that, you just don't see that at all now. And and, and, it, and it's not, it, you know, and it's not just the case that it's just defensive work. I mean, moving up the pitch is, is really good as well. I, I always think with like players like that, like the, like if you sort of playing in front of the defence, the real, the really good ones can, you, you know, like, you, you, if, I don't know, if it's, <laughs> If it's uh, if it's Carl Henry, you can just let him have the ball because he's not going to do anything. <laughs> but like you know, you sort of uh, as it, you know, McLeary was the famous one. I mean, De Jong used to be really good at it as well. For us, to be fair, is that you, you have you know he, he the the real the real really good players in that sort of anchor position they cause a problem for the other team because if you don't push up against them, they can move forward another twenty thirty yards and start destroying you themselves. Uh, and that and that's what he, that's what he can do. So he really provides a problem for the opposition with the ball as well as without it. Yeah, yeah, and he can bang it in the top corner sometimes, Richard. Yeah, as well. yeah. yeah I, there's times when he gets the ball. Um, I mean, every time he gets the ball, sort of within thirty yards of the goal. Now, I'd like him to have a shot. I mean, it's probably for the best that he doesn't. But um, <laughs> yeah, he's he's got a real knack for it. And can I just say that is possibly um, the most unexpected shout out for Carl Henry I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> a lovely surprise. Possibly, possibly. What runs it close? <laughs> yeah. Never really miss an opportunity to dig out Carl Henry who's not just a <laughs> very bad football but also a terrible human being. Himself, so, um, Fair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, right, on last week's show we heard the first part of our interview with former City defender Spencer Pryor where he spoke about the promotion to the Premier League in the year 2000. It's now time for the second part of that interview. He starts here by explaining how the move to Main Road came about. So I was at Derby and, and really enjoying my football there to be honest with you and I'd had a, a, a really, really solid season uh, the one before. I think I played about 35 of the games and really had a good a good season, captained the side as well for a little bit. And um, I, was, I was loving my time at Derby. Um, and, I, and I sat down one day with Jim Smith and said, look, it's got, I'm, I'm really loving it. And, and, you know, I had a good relationship with Steve McLaren and Bill Bezik and Jim. And, you know, the, the, the season that, that then followed, the club was struggling a little bit. And I said, look, I'm loving it here. Can I, I, you know, I want to, I want to stay longer. But what I didn't realise was that Derby were in a bit of financial trouble at that time, and they needed to sell someone to balance the books. So I didn't realise it was me that was going to be the one that was going to be sold. Uh, the, the interest came in from Man City, and it, it all happened so quick. Got straight on the, the minute that the club gave permission for me to go and talk to him. Got straight back on the on the road, 
at the M6, that went and did a tour of the ground and yeah, met with Jim, uh, with Joe Royal straight away. And yeah, that was it. Fell in love with it. And it was a done deal. And I, I loved Derby and I loved the club. I loved what they were trying to do, but the chance to go and play for Man City with the history and, you know, at the time the new ground wasn't even a vision. Um, so to to have gone there, looked at the kit packs and gone, what, this is this is next level. Um, always up for a challenge as well. So it was, it was an enjoyable time. That's how it all transpired. Yeah, I was. I mean, it, it was obviously uh, City were the league below at the time, but they were doing really well and uh, looking like yeah. they were like they were going to go up. Um, were you expecting to go up that year? Yeah, I, I'd say so. That the expectation was there within the playing group and with the coaching staff, but we we were really calm with it as well. So. We kept winning games and the club kept winning, but the teams around us also all kept winning as well. So I think it was Charlton that ran away with it and we were trying to stay on their tails, but I think it was Ipswich who was really close and we just couldn't shake them off, like literally couldn't shake them off. And the boys were, were you could see they were, you could see that they were at the stage of the season where it was going to go one or two ways, either they were going to kick on or going to capitulate and potentially just miss out on everything because, you know, the, 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 the progress that had been made over the course of the two seasons prior, it was at that stage where it was going to, you know, just they had to keep the momentum going, which I think is part of the reason why I was brought in was just, just to give that little bit of a lift at, towards the end of the season. Um. So, yes, there was an expectation, but a realistic one as well. Yeah. Then, obviously, the next summer, um, that season was uh, was tough. Um, it, it finished we, weren't, with... we weren't ready. Yeah. Like, you know, the expectation was to go up, but we weren't ready to go up. You know, the, when, you could, when you have back-to-back promotions, there's often like a little bit of a correction that can happen. Unfortunately, we weren't able to have that stability and stabilise for one season in the Prem. We just weren't ready for it. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm still super proud of being part of the journey to get up to the Prem, which probably put the club back on the map as a, as a, a Premier League club. Um, but, yeah, we weren't ready. You see stats pop up all the time about clubs and players. And you want to know that exact thing about City? There's an answer. StatCity.co.uk Want to find out all of the players who played alongside club legends like David Silva, Sergio Aguero or Vincent Company? Or maybe you'd like to know which team found it hardest to score past Joe Hart. You can find out City's record in every competition, at every stadium and under every manager. Just go to StatCity.co.uk and browse away. That's statcity.co.uk. Obviously, that night at Ipswich was uh, was hard to take, but it, it obviously it doesn't. It isn't. You're not relegated on one game. It's a, it's an entire season. 100%. Um, what 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 was it like when you when you left the pitch that that night? Because obviously. Um, you know, the end of the season, Joe Royal loses his job and, and you know, the, the, there's change coming and there's change in the wind. But what, what was it like when you were leaving the pitch at Portman Road? 
Um, a bit of shock, actually. A bit of shock. I mean, we hadn't, we, we were fighting, we were fighting to stay in. Um, I think, I, I just don't, I, I don't think we, you know, you, you, you tend to finish up where you, where you deserve to be. And we were still going to try and keep fighting and fighting and fighting till the end. And we were quite a tight knit group, but it was a, it was, it was a shock and it was a disappointment, but it had been building through the season, the expectation. And when you're constantly trying to look up and, and survive, you know, I've, I've done survival stuff before. It is completely different at the Premier League level, you know, and, yeah, it was it was a disappointment and a frustration, and yeah, of course, Joe lost his job, and and I finished up leaving as well, and you know there was a lot of change, but but it it, it probably needed change, you know, it, it, the club needed change to get back up to the Premier League, and you know, I I think I think the change was probably a thing for the better. Yeah, is it is it that is it that chasing that's the hard thing? Because I, I think I think that season when City dropped into the relegation zone, they never quite got out of there again. Is it is it that that kind of the need to catch up with somebody else that is that is just really hard? It's an it's not only that, but when you're a club like the size of Manchester City, you don't you don't you don't want to be the club that gets a Man City on a roll, potentially putting you in trouble. So when you're in that bottom three and you see it even now with the likes of Norwich, right? No one wants to be the team that's going to lose to Norwich. And at the time we were, we were, we were the team that were fighting for our lives and, and, you know, other clubs, sport's pretty ruthless and they want to be the team that sends you down. They don't want to be the team that's going to help you survive. And, yeah, it was it was tough. It was it was a constant, you know, the, the the players having gone through two seasons of winning and having a real winning mentality, were then sort of celebrating if we picked up a draw or, or a win, and it was a different mindset and one that I don't think the players were really used to. Um, yeah, it was super tough, really tough season. Yeah. Uh, Spencer, just to finish, I'd just like to ask you about uh, what you're up to these days, because uh, it won't have escaped people's notice that uh, there's a little bit of an Australian twang in your accent these days. So uh, you're, you're living down under. I've been there for 15 years. So when I went back to Southend and, ret- you know, we finished in Southend in 2006. And then um, my wife had already been, my wife had uh, um, decided to go and have a little recce. You know, we moved back to Southend and went, oh, it's pretty pretty average there's got to be more life than this so Claire and a friend decided to go to Sydney for a recce fell in love with it got three girls thought oh it's a great place to bring the kids up and we just went and did it in 2006 um got ourselves over there no jobs no schools no work just no house absolute bunkers right so it took us maybe Oh, I reckon 10 to 10 years to get settled and find our way and establish what we, you know, what, what it's all about. And, um, yeah, so Sydney's home. Um, and in the meantime, I've done a little bit of coaching. So I was with the women's national team at the 2011 World Cup with Australia um, as an assistant coach. And then in 2015, I was the head coach of Thailand women's national team. 
Um, and I'm just doing a little bit of coaching over there and, and got myself a normal job. So I'm doing recruitment, working in recruitment. Um, I probably I probably realised that I'd be good at sales when I managed to convince the GOAT to come and play down at South End for a season. Because if I could sell South End to the GOAT, I can sell anything, literally. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where I'm at at the moment. Please give us your backing patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast that was the second part of our interview with former city defender spencer Pryor. the full half hour interview is now available on our patreon page for all backers take a look at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast uh, time to look ahead to the games with leeds and real madrid uh we welcome john mckenzie from all stats aren't we hi john hi how are you not too bad, thanks. Um, let's talk about Leeds because um, it was a bit of a drab nil-nil at Palace. But then again, who's not done that really? Everyone draws nil-nil at Palace, don't they? Um, how are things going though for uh, for Leeds at the moment? Well, I guess if you look at the table, it, things are going fairly well. We've picked up a lot of points recently and that's what you need to do when you're in a relegation battle. In terms of the performances on the field, it's been a little less uh, savoury, but um, it's hard to really know what to expect from a new manager coming in at this point, really. How much time does a manager need before he turns the, the team around in any way? But as things stand, it does feel as though Jesse Marsh is making performances worse as time goes on. And this season, we've seen a couple of coaches come in. I'm thinking Antonio Conte, uh, Eddie Howe, and within two months have had their teams looking like they're trying to do something that the manager wants. And that's not really been the case with Leeds. So we're sort of caught in this horrible limbo um, between, you know, variants going our way with some results, uh, but then the performance is getting worse. So I think that there's a, a bit of panic setting in around Elland Road because, um, yeah, it's looking like the other teams are hot on our heels and uh, the only thing really going for us at the moment is we're being a little bit more lucky than maybe some of the other teams. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, are, are Leeds in trouble? I mean, five points clear of 18th, but you have played one game more. Yeah, we've got um, five points on, on Everton, I think. And uh, yeah, I think it's very much going to come down to um, the the fact that we've got those five points and that buffer above them. And you would expect maybe one of those two teams to have the chance of everything going right and them crawling their way out of the relegation battle. Uh, but both of them doing that and Leeds doing everything wrong between now and the end of the season, to me, seems fairly unlikely. So yeah, it's it's definitely a worry, but I think we're in the the driving seat, as it were. Yeah. Um, Gaz, for, for this one, um, I, I, I'm I'm a little nervous about this game. And I don't know if that's uh, that kind of the normal nerves ahead of every game situation now that the crunch time's here, or if it's a genuine fear that City might drop points at Ellen Road. How are you feeling about this? Um, relatively confident. I'm not, not, not sure why. Um, we've kind of had, I, I mean, I might as well annoy our guest here by sort of resorting to stereotypes, but... Leads were sort of that Bielsa's leads were, 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 were sort of noted for, you know, two types of performances, weren't they? Sort of like, you know, near perfect deconstructions of their opponent and, you know, the, the whole sort of finely tuned thing falling apart. We've kind of had both, haven't we, um, against them? Um, uh, and I just think, I just, I just wonder that without, you know, with, with, with the change of manager, the, the the sort of latter's a bit a bit more likely, um, so I would I would back us. I think it's one of the games in the running which I've got uh, I'm a lot less 
worried about, but that's not to say that, you know, <laughs> I'm not slightly concerned because it's it's happened before um, that, they, that, 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 they, yeah, that they've completely done us. Yeah, Richard, the, there's also the the problem in, in inverted commas that uh, City have just had that rip-roaring tie against Real Madrid. They've got another tie against Real Madrid coming next week. It's almost like the forgotten fixture in the middle of it all. Yeah, um, but it it won't be for Guardiola, will it? Because he'll be desperate to win the league. So um, I'm not too worried about that side of things. Um, I, I think... Clearly, there's some um, some fitness issues that we could do without, um, particularly at the back. Uh, I think we're still waiting to see, uh, certainly at the time of recording, waiting to see what the situation is with John Stones following his injury on Tuesday night. Um, Kyle Walker seems to be constantly on the verge of being all right, but not actually being there. Would you risk um, Walker if he's close, just given, given what he offers City and knowing what City might need in the Bernabeu? I'd probably be inclined to say no. Um, I think Cancelo will be coming off the back of his um, potential to really show himself up here. I'm right in saying Cancelo was suspended against Madrid, He was, right? yes. yeah. He yeah. Was. Don't worry. Um, I knew that and suddenly really doubted myself. Um, I think coming off the back of his rest and, and like Guardiola likes to keep players in rhythm because like keeping the rhythm is actually as important as being well rested as well so I wouldn't be concerned about him playing with a view to then playing the second leg against Madrid um, I think there's there's options to cover if um, not starting Walker or not just throwing him in and we have players in fullback position that do offer things I think clearly Walker is a sensational fullback um, and, and offers City so so much but it's not like I, I don't think we fall apart without him there are options to um, to cover so I'm not overly concerned about where it falls in the season I think we've been in um, we've, we've played league games between massive Champions League games before and um, granted not all with the intensity of Tuesday night um, but we seem to handle that reasonably well and you know dare I say we've, we've sort of got the resources to um, to do that I think yeah, John, you, you mentioned before about performances under uh, Jesse Marsh. Um, what's changed since he's come in? How's, it, how's he trying to play? Well, the big thing with Bielsa was creating space in possession, using the wings to, to build up, particularly getting into dangerous scoring areas in, in that manner. Uh, whereas Jesse Marsh is much more about centrality, so going direct through the middle, trying to get the ball there as quickly as possible. And if you lose the ball going forward, you have... Uh, theoretically a, a really snappy counter press to win the ball back and then counter attack from there again um so yeah sort of maybe even rugby league vibes about just gain, gaining territory through directness um so that's that's very different in terms of the out of possession stuff you've still got a fairly high pressing line you've still got fairly intense uh, press as well uh but I've noticed against some of the last few teams we've played, our high press really hasn't done much to slow the opposition down. So we've had games against Watford and we've had games against Palace and both of those teams are teams that you wouldn't really expect to be particularly proficient at build-up play, but they've managed to get through our press no problem whatsoever. So I don't anticipate Man City, a team who are obviously very good at that kind of thing, being able to um, being able to play through that. And once you do that, once you get pressed past a high press of four players, you have two uh, central midfielders in a double pivot and then the back line. Uh, and one of the, I guess, one of the um, corollaries of having 
such narrowness in your attacking players that often the the fullbacks are left pretty exposed. And so what we're seeing a lot of the time is teams um, building up on one side, switching quickly to the other uh, and getting um, wide players isolated 1v1 against fullbacks. And uh, as we chatted about this week, actually, David, that's one of City's really real strengths this season. So I expect to see a lot of that as well, that ball from someone like Cancelo, someone like Laporte, someone like Rodri into the opposite side, uh, trying to get the, the wide player, whoever is on that side, isolated against the fullback. So I, I think there's lots of things that will cause Leeds problem, problems in this game, to be honest. Yeah, I was going to say, Gaz, that sounds like music to our ears, doesn't it? Surely. Yeah. What was? Well, yes. I mean, if 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 it plays out like that, um, yeah. What what what's the deal with Marsh? Is he? Um, is this like an audition for him for next year, or has he definitely got definitely got the job? I and mean, what's the kind of situation with him? It- he has a three and a half year contract. Oh right, I didn't um, realise. So, so he's here for, for the near future. Although I think a, f- a fair few of the coaching staff are on, um, we're only on six month contracts till the summer. I think that's partly because obviously Jesse Marsh is uh, uh, is non. British and and a lot of his coaching staff will have been non-British and there's certain rules that um, apply now with respect to Brexit and the government body um, regulations that you need to have to to get in the country. So I expect that if he he will stay in the summer regardless, probably, I think, um, barring some kind of disaster. Uh, But if he does stay on, then I expect we might see an influx of coaches from other jobs that he's had. So obviously he's been in Salzburg and in Vienna. He's also been at RB Leipzig in, in Germany. He's been in the US as well. So I suspect he's got coaches from around the world who may, may be coming in at that point. Richard, I'm, I'm interested as well. Like Obviously Guardiola has said consistently he doesn't care about this. Um, Liverpool go first again uh, this weekend. There's uh, they play Newcastle and they're away. Newcastle are in form. Are you already doing it to yourself? Are you already considering that Newcastle might get something out of this game? <laughs> um, <clears throat> there's probably two fixtures in Liverpool's running that I look to as being the ones that I'm pinning my hopes on them dropping points. Um, and this would be one of them purely because of Newcastle's home form. Um, they've they're taking a the momentum into the game that, most teams don't take into games against Liverpool. Um, so I think this may be a chance. That so how, 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 how are you going to feel when it's uh, finished Newcastle nil, Liverpool 4 and we've gone to go to <laughs> Ellen Road? But that'll just be the norm, won't it? I mean, it's um, I'm not overly pinning my hopes on it. I think it's, it's maybe one of the pressure points and it's probably one that Liverpool fans will, will look at and think, this is one of our tougher games. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm expecting a, a rip-roaring Newcastle win. I mean, if anything, what are they on now? Is it six home wins in a row? Like, I always think with with unlikely runs of form, the longer they go on, the likelier it is that it's about to end. So it's because it's already unlikely that it's progressed that far and sort of it's, <laughs> it's odds on that it has to end at some point. So Liverpool are probably the team to bring that to an end for Newcastle. But you never know. It's it's nice to hope. I don't, um, I, I don't really care these days about the who goes first. I don't think... I think we've seen for quite a while now that in tight run-ins between City and Liverpool, it doesn't seem to affect either one of them. I think the, the neither of them choke on big occasions. Of course, sometimes they might lose, but it's not it's not a matter of nerve anymore, is it? It's um, 
I think maybe it would give them um, a bounce if Liverpool were to get beat, but I don't think Liverpool winning will be sort of a weight on City's shoulders, shoulders or anything like that. Yeah. We've never, I mean, it sounds a bit cocky, but we've, we've never lost a title race, have we? So we, we might find out how that happens. A, a tight one. We've, we've got a decent record of coming out on top of them, haven't we? Long, hopefully that continues another season. <laughs> yeah. Um, John, what's the difference between uh, Leeds at home and Leeds away? Is there one at the moment? Um, I'm not entirely sure, actually, under Marsh. Um, I, I think we were better away from home at one point this season and a lot of people who are Leeds fans put that down to Ellen Road being a bit of a being a bit of a, a, a cauldron when things get um, bad I'm not sure how much I read into that but I was gonna say we've we've been there with Main yeah, Road I, re- I remember those days <laughs> yeah. yeah we may see this I think if we go into this one and and maybe Leeds play badly from the off and concede a couple quickly then you might see that sort of thing happening but again that's wildly context dependent but um i think that uh, yeah at the moment I, I i kind of don't expect us to put up much in terms of uh, big performances um and i suppose the big question with jesse marsh is that we haven't really seen him playing against good sides we've not had a fixture against a uh, quote-unquote top six side yet and i suppose when you look at the data um the the comparative fixtures that marsh has taken um leads through um he's actually a point worse off than Marcelo Bielsa was a lot of people have made a lot about his defensive uh, strengthening uh, and making the defense better because obviously Leeds were very open but actually if you look at those um fixtures comparatively he's not actually improved the defense in any way so it, it's one of those ones where this is I think a big fixture in terms of knowing what to expect from Jesse Marsh because we were obviously getting turned over in these fixtures earlier in the season and I think if we get turned over again in, in a similar fixture then uh, the crowd may turn on them but it, there is the possibility that Leeds will just sit deep and not offer much in terms of uh, attack and just um, fail to concede a lot and so I suppose that might be considered a good result. I saw, I saw the game against, was it Wolves, where it was like a bit of a mad game and they showed mm. a lot of resolve and they came back. That, that's what worries me, if we can sort of find that kind of resolve uh, in good, good sort of business, a similar yeah, I suppose the context of that game was that there was a red card and before mm. the red card, we were absolutely nowhere. And then we it sort of gave us the motivation to get in back into it as well. So, yeah, it's it's a funny one. It is, it is 11 points from the last five games, though. So, it, I mean, it quietly feels like Leeds might be in some form. Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends on how you distinguish between results and performances, I suppose. And I do think that the the big reason why a lot of Leeds fans are worried is because there's a realisation that, you know, results and performances are actually linked in some way. So if you're performing well, you expect to get those results. And at the moment, the, the performances are so bad that I think that... Um, that most Leeds fans are just a little bit worried that 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 the um, the, the variance is just going to go the wrong way, and we're going to start getting the luck that we've had coming for us for a few weeks now. And yeah, if a team is going to do that against you, it's going to be a team like Man City. Yeah, um, Gaz, there's there's also the the matter of the Champions League second leg for City um, in the midweek after. Um, how how do you see this week playing out for City? Because I I, I guess. The lack of away goals has helped City here now because they, that Madrid don't have those three away goals. They just have, you know, a one-goal deficit going into that tie. Yeah, I think that, that second game is going to be very different Different anyway. I think he'll probably play Grealish and probably um, try, try and con- exercise control. I think if the, the, the Tuesday's game, um, 
we were trying to break very quickly, weren't we, and, and, and score very quickly every time we sort of got it and move it through. I think it'll be a lot more controlled than that slower game, and I think he'll 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 pick two or three different players really in order to to, to help us do that. Um, as a result, actually, you might see quite a similar team on on Saturday as you did on Tuesday because I think he'll change it for the following midweek. Yeah. Richard, are you are you confident about the the Champions League second leg? It's a strange question because obviously the one goal lead is is actually quite a tight lead going into that. Yeah, um, confident is probably pushing it. I think it's it's clearly a very tense occasion, um, and it's a it's a tense feeling to be going into the game with. But I think what I take comfort from and what makes me feel a bit better about it is I think City will score and as soon as that happens then that that shifts it for Real Madrid they've got to do more you know on paper it's sort of you can say well if they score one then it's back even and of course they're more than capable of scoring two or three again um, but I also think City are capable of doing the same and I think they will do the same I think um, it's so as one or two goals swings it massively in City's favour which is why it still feels like a good result for all the missed chances we're going with a one goal lead to the Bernabeu so it's a really advantageous position to be in even if it is only slender um, so I'm um, I wouldn't say confident, but I'm also not overly worried. I think it's just excitingly poised. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's money where your mouth is time, gents, because uh, we're on £1,340 for the charity bet this season so far. We are still £10 short of our best ever season. So uh, if we can get one correct prediction in between now and the end of the season, we will uh, better our, our best ever season. William Hill has given each of us a £10 correct score single. The winnings are going to the Man City Fans Food Bank support, which is helping the Trussell Trust tackle food poverty in Manchester. Um, we'll start with the trip to Ellen Road. Uh, Richard, what have you got for this one? Uh, I'm going City to win two nil. Uh, that's seven to one and seventy pounds if you're right, John. What's your uh, what's your score prediction? I'll go three nil. I know that you've been trying to persuade me that you're definitely going to struggle in this game, but I'm just not not <laughs> hearing it. I'm sorry. Fair enough. Uh, that's seventeen to two and eighty five pounds if you're right, uh, Gaz. What are you having? Three uh, one. Uh, 3-1, uh, 3-1 City is 10-1 to 1 and £100 if you're right. Uh, that leads us on to the Real Madrid game. Uh, I have gone for uh, a two-all draw, which is 11-1 to 1 and £110 if I'm right. That'll see City safely through. Uh, Richard, what are you having? Going for another thriller. Uh, I'm going 3-2 to City. 3-2 is 22-1, to 1, so uh, £220 if you're right. Gaz, it's your time to shine, mate. 3-3. Uh, three three is forty to one, so four hundred pounds if you're right. It'd be uh, a nice addition to the kitty. Uh, it's never going to happen, is it? Uh, remember, you've got to be eighteen or over to gamble. Prices can change. And for more on gambling responsibly, take a look at begambleaware.org. Uh, John McKenzie from All Stats, aren't we? Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Where can everyone find your stuff? Yeah, so All Stats on We is at All Stats on We, helpfully enough. And uh, my personal Twitter has a bit of football stuff on it. That's at John underscore McKenzie. John, thank you very much. Best, uh, I was going to say best of luck for weekend, but I genuinely don't mean it. So uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to pretend. <laughs> We're going to need the luck for sure. So time now to hear from Howard Hawking. He's back on the show this week. He's taking a look at the atmosphere inside the Etihad and the factors that go into how good or bad it is. It was a beautiful Manchester evening. Manchester was red, but that was just the sun setting, giving the sky a beautiful hue. And as soon as I walked into the Etihad, it felt like a special night was in store. The ground looked amazing, the flags helped. 
can never be sure, of course, as City could have been three goals down and have two players set off in the first half. But the omens, if such things exist, were good. And it delivered. A goal after 90 seconds set the scene for one of the stadium's greatest ever matches. It was always going to be good, surely. This is a Champions League semi-final against Real Madrid. It's not always the case, of course. Good atmospheres are becoming rarer and rarer. I would die on one hill in arguing why this is. There is too much football. And you can have too much of a good thing. I can watch every City match anywhere in the world on any device. The match day itself is not as special as it used to be, as football is all-consuming nowadays. And now that City are good, we actually play more games. We spend all day online arguing about it, watching replays, discussing transfers. No more going to the game, racking up phone bills on club call and learning about other results by buying the pink at 6pm on a Saturday. Then of course there's the sanitisation of the game, a return to standing, a welcome antidote to that. Newer stadiums don't have that edge, perhaps because fans are too far removed from the pitch. And City are just too good, that often would turn up expecting City to win. And there is little danger in many games. That's the price of success and of us being spoilt. Rival fans may mock us about how much noise they would make in a title race and how many they would take to Wembley. But that's because they haven't been in a title race before, nor been to Wembley once, let alone 20 times. Anyway, it got me thinking about atmospheres at the Etihad across its 19-year history. Because with a league title on the line, I expected a 3pm kick-off against Watford on Saturday to be electric. And couldn't have been more wrong, it was more like a wake before livening up a bit later on. Perhaps caused by the assumption, correctly, once more, that despite what was on the line, the match would not be tense or challenging. Kick-off times make a difference too. Let's be honest, the more drunk the crowd is, the better. Sunday games are rubbish, in my opinion. And evening matches under the floodlights can be the best if there is importance in the game. And then there's the old timers getting upset by the proliferation of tourists who actually stay to the end. They're recording a whole match or even standing there recording a penalty should be an immediate life ban. Though that is nothing compared to people who film music gigs. There's a special place in hell waiting for them. I digress, but it was good to get it off my chest. But of course there's been many magical 90 minutes in this stadium down the years and not always at the business end of the season, which is rather key. The best atmospheres cannot be precisely predicted and are not always found where you expect them to be. The Real Madrid match was always likely to be lively and the knockout games in the Champions League have always been excellent as long as there's something at stake. It was hard to get excited about Bruges, Basel or Sporting. And perversely, important matches may not provide the best atmospheres if tension takes over in the crowd. But think of some of the best atmospheres at this ground and some are obvious, some are not. The key games against Liverpool in the league and United in 2012. I don't remember much about that, but I assume it was a good atmosphere. Certainly at the end. But the less obvious ones, well they can be caused by a perfect storm. The home game against Hamburg was amazing in the days when any European competition felt special. Then there's Everton in the League Cup semi-final. Again City were trying to overturn a first leg deficit, went further behind, then started fighting back in the tie. A stirring comeback is a perfect setup for a great atmosphere. It's the best time for fans to know that they can make a difference to the team on the pitch, driving them on. And there's the rub. You could put the onus on fans to create an atmosphere, but much of the time circumstances are just as important. Creating an atmosphere has become as difficult as possible, especially as on top of the earlier reasons I mentioned, there are the price rises and the creeping corporate areas around stadia. So what can make an atmosphere explode? Maybe it will be a refereeing disaster class to get us all worked up or just one perceived injustice. Fans love nothing more than to be angry. Maybe you just hate the opposition team, and more specifically, their fans. And sometimes it can be for the most spurious of reasons. 
There should be no excuse for not generating atmosphere when playing United or Liverpool. But Everton? Think about that semi-final again. It was a great game, and with a controversial goal thrown in for good measure. Everton fit the bill perfectly for a team you can hate for left-field reasons, which in turn can greatly enhance an atmosphere on match day. Older Blues may have memories of hooliganism problems around Stanley Park back in the day. Some may hate Everton because he just kept beating us a few years ago, and Tim Cahill kept scoring a winning header despite being the smallest player on the pitch. I mean, he's probably only ever scored one winning header, yet in my mind it's about 20. Maybe having an obstructed view at Goodison is enough, or their crocodile tears when we bought Jolene Lescott and David Moyes' constant harping because we wanted a player of theirs, acting as if we'd violated the Geneva Convention. One other consideration, something that is crucial to atmosphere, the away fans. There weren't many Real Madrid fans at the Etihad on Tuesday, and they weren't the noisiest nor the quietest. But away fans have been the lifeblood of atmosphere in British grounds for decades, as fans in the UK travel in numbers, which is not always the case across Europe and beyond. But on Tuesday, the home fans created their own atmosphere, and the players made it easy for us, supplying a feast that will be remembered for many years. But ultimately, Pep can make all the impassioned speeches he wants about the fans helping the team, but it's down to what happens on the pitch to make a match atmosphere special. Pep wants to make things better, then be vocal about cheap tickets, transport around the ground, kick-off times and more. I think I've spoken about that before. Either way, all the great atmospheres have been for games where what happened on the pitch mattered and where the end result was unknown until the very end. Ultimately, Tuesday reminded me of the importance of fans. Last year, City got past PSG to get to the Champions League final on a hail-covered pitch in an empty stadium. An amazing performance, but one that history may easily forget compared to the Real Madrid match, because many of us were there, experiencing it in the flesh, jumping up and down, chanting, screaming, and of course, occasionally moaning. Living the match. It reminded me once more that I take it all for granted sitting in my seat week after week, and it can be boring in there when City are playing teams that you just expect to win, and then do, comfortably. But it really is good to be back, and it's good to see football with its most important component back, those fans. Tuesday reminded me of that. I think the crowd really did spur the team on on Tuesday. Let's hope they can do so when it matters, on many occasions in the future. Hi, Colin Hendry, you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was Howard Hawking, and that's the end of this week's Blue Moon Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and thanks to my guests for today's show, Richard Burns. Thank you very much. And to Gaz. Thank you. If you'd like to hear some more and you'd also like to support the podcast, then you could sign up to our Patreon. All the money backed goes towards making the show and you'll get bonus podcasts every Monday as well. We've got several formats of the new bonus shows. This week's was City Heaven, City Hell, where me, City fan Liam Wright, and Wigan fan Barry Worthington talked through four games between the two sides, too good and too bad. Here's a little clip. The referee asked me how they handballed it. Oh, yeah. Right, what's he going to say? Terry Elbron. El- the name of the referee, he was a disgrace, an absolute disgrace. I mean, Kevin Sharp got cleaned out in the penalty box off Vikings, absolutely cleaned out, and he waved play on. Uh, everything conspired against us, I and mean, from, from the decisions, we hit the bar later on as well with, uh, with uh, Pat McGibbon heading against the bar. I, I was sat in the north stand for this one, Liam, and I tell you what, I, it, it seemed very much to me like Gota, like he'd like used the top of his uh, top of his chest. It didn't seem like his hand at all, did it? <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, I was in the north stand as well that day, and um, I mean, I don't really, I, I, 
what I remember more than anything um, was just how the atmosphere was probably the best I'd ever seen it at Main Road. You know, it was um, sort of a late, well, sort of early summer's evening. You know, I think the sun was still shining when the game kicked off, but it had gone dark by the time the game finished. And um, yeah, when the when the uh, goat was goal went in, I, I mean, I can remember it going in, um, but it looked from where I was more like his shoulder than his hand. But <laughs> I, I suppose I was quite young at the time, so I'm not, I can't really remember. I don't think we felt any, any animosity whatsoever towards City. It was all directed at the referee because, yeah. um, you know, to us, uh, Sean Gorton, you know, he could say whatever he wanted to say, but that was, as far as we're concerned, a handball. <laughs> That was a clip of this week's Patreon show. It's available now for everyone who backs the podcast by £2 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. You'll get a show like that every Monday and you'll also get this podcast at the end of the week without the ads as well. I'll be back next week to review the game with Leeds and the second leg with Real Madrid. So I'll see you then. was the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast